0: Well, good morning, 9 o'clock. How are you guys this morning? Awesome, awesome. Hey, if you have a Bible, I really hope you do. We'll be in Romans chapter 1 today. Uh, for those of you who I have not met yet, my name is Josh Brooker, and uh, I, I kind of feel like I'm back at like my old high school right now, because I was <laughs> I was on staff here for about seven years uh, before I was sent out to the beautiful land of Cannon County, Tennessee, where I now pastor our Cannon County campus. So uh, yeah, Cannon County is the place where... Covid ain't real, and we're still trying to stop the steals. So, um, you can laugh at that. It's okay. I know we're tense. Like, loosen up. We're good. We're gonna make it, right? I can make that joke because I live out there. If you do, we'll kill you. So, um, but man, we're <laughs> we've we've tracked right along with the. Murfreesboro campus and all our campuses actually uh, in the book of Romans. Really, really, really excited to be sharing from God's word this morning in the book of Romans. If you weren't with us last week, we were in the first half of Romans, and we talked about this idea of the gospel. And if you're new to Christianity, you've never really read the Bible before, Romans is a really, really, really good book to start in because Romans is essentially Christian theology in a nutshell. What is this thing called the gospel? The gospel. And so what we saw in verse 16 of the very first chapter of this letter to a church in the city of Rome in AD 57 is that Paul, the writer of this letter, said he's not ashamed of the gospel. Anytime you see that word gospel in the book of Romans, you could just replace that with good news because that's what it means. Good news. It's actually a military term. The word in the Greek is evangelion. And when people would proclaim evangelion, usually they would proclaim the news that a king was victorious. And because the king was victorious, peace could now happen. And so Paul says he's not ashamed of the evangelion. He's not ashamed of the good news. He says it is the power of God for salvation. But the logical question, if you're paying attention and someone says something like that, is this. Okay, so what are we saved from? If it is the power to save us, from what are we Saved. And so, what we're going to see as we get into the second half of Romans 1 is this. First and foremost, Christianity teaches that we are saved from the wrath of God. Ooh, you getting uncomfortable this morning, right? Let's just real talk. Um, a lot of the verses that we're going to read this morning, you're not going to see those like cross stitched in Hobby Lobby on a plaque, right? <laughs> There's not like tweetable verses this morning for some of us. Like, the wrath of God makes us, as, as 21st century Christians, squirm. And some of us feel the need to apologize for the scriptures when we read passages like we're going to read this morning. I just feel the tension in the room when we talked about the wrath of God. Because some going, go, wait, I, I want to talk about God as a God of mercy and love and grace. And I want to talk about the fact that God is angry. That doesn't, that doesn't, I don't like that. But here's what the scriptures are going to say. Um, the wrath of God is something that humanity righteously deserves. That we are under his wrath, and we actually deserve to be under his wrath. This is not a popular teaching, but I need you to hear me. I need you to understand this morning. Unless there is something to be saved from, there is no point in talking about salvation. Like Christianity is not good news if it is that Jesus has showed up to make you a little bit better version of yourself than you already are. All that is, that's not Christianity. That's not salvation. That's not gospel. All that is is self-actualization. For some of us, that's the version of Christianity that we prefer, and that's the version of Christianity that we've been peddled, and when we start talking about God's wrath and we start talking about uncomfortable versions of Scripture, some of us feel like we need to apologize for God, and the two big reasons that modern evangelicals feel like we need to apologize for God is one of the things we're going to read about today, the Bible's teaching on God's judgment and God's wrath, and the other one is another thing we're going to talk about today, and that's the Bible's teachings about human sexuality, right? Like, we can tolerate any version of God anywhere. God's a tree. God's a stick. God's the wind. God's a stranger on a bus just a slob like one of us. Sure, absolutely. Amen. But the one thing, the, the one version of God we cannot tolerate is a God that will judge us and a God that has something to say about sex. And here's the thing, man. If your version of God never challenges your preconceptions, It never corrects your errors. It never offends your sensibilities. It never crosses your will. It looks just like you, and and for whatever reason, it never tells you no. It just kind of gives you a big thumbs up to do what it is you want to do and makes you feel good all the time. I just need to suggest this to you. You're probably not worshiping and praying to the God of the Bible. You have probably created a God of your own making and imagination and propped that thing up and said, I want to believe in a God like this because the God I want to believe in will never tell me no and will just give me a thumbs up with whatever it is I want to do. And that's not a God that can save you. That's not a God that can change you. That is not gospel and that is not good news. And so this morning, before we even get started, I just need you to know, there's going to be some passages of Scripture that we read today and because you have a bias, you have a lens, you're an American in 2021, You're going to read this, and and you're going to bristle, and you're going to go, that can't be right. Is it that God's Word is somehow in error, or is it that we are products of our day and age? So before we even come into the Scriptures, I, I need us to be honest with our own biases. I need us to be aware of our own biases, and I need us to take the posture before the Word of God on our knees, not standing over it saying, I'm the one who decides what's right in this, and I'm the one who decides what needs to be believed, and I'm the one that decides what needs to be torn out, and I'm the one that decides what things we need to reinterpret to mean something different than what it actually says. Are you following me this morning? And so, man, this is serious stuff. I've been praying for you all week. I think it's interesting that the week that Corey's in Shelbyville, he gives me the most difficult passage of Scripture ever to teach on, so... (laughs) So anyway, uh, if I say something offends you this morning, just send me an email at Corey at experiencecc.com. So anyway, (laughs) hey, let's pray and then we'll we'll dive into this. Father, we need you this morning. Oh, we need you this morning. Lord, our minds have been tainted and warped and bent by the biases of culture, by the pride and self-righteousness of the day and age in which we live in. So God, when we read about you being a God of judgment and you being a God of wrath, there's something in us that goes, that can't be so. But Lord, you say in your word that you are what you are. You said to Moses, I am what I am. And so Lord, my understanding of you does not define who you are. And I pray in the name of Jesus that our hearts, that our minds, that our wills would come in this morning to your word and we would bow the knee, and we would say, Lord, not my will, but your will. Not my word, but your word. Let us have the same heart posture that song we sang earlier. I'm available. God, speak whatever it is you want to speak. We pray for all of our campuses across the state this morning. We pray for Shelbyville, and we pray for Cannon County. We pray for every church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Lord, wherever the gospel is being preached this morning, we celebrate that. and We ask in the name of Jesus that you would unite us as one church under the name of Jesus. We need it now more so than ever before. We pray all these things this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Romans 1, starting in verse 18, we'll read the first three verses. This is God's word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So the whole point of the book of Romans is this idea of the gospel, the good news. But the gospel is not good except for those who understand its necessity. It's not good news if you don't think you need it. And so what Paul is going to do, he's going to talk about this idea. Okay, so it's the power of God for salvation, but from what is it that we're saved? And he answers that in verse 18. He says, the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Here's what he's saying. The wrath of God is directed towards humanity. That we have done many things to offend and rebel against a holy God. And so his wrath is directed towards us. Now, before we check out and we go, well, I just can't believe that. I can't believe that God's angry. He's sitting up in a cloud with his arms folded just waiting to zap people. Let, let's talk about what Paul means when he is the, the wrath of God. There's two words for wrath in the Greek. The first word is the word sumos. It's where we get the word thermal or thermonuclear. It, it implies like a red hot burning anger. When we talk about the, the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods, this is most likely what we're talking about, right? This is explosive impulsive, irrational rage when someone is irritated or someone's annoyed. This is like an alcoholic father. You're never quite sure what kind of mood he's gonna be in and what he's gonna explode in. This is one word for wrath, and we thank God this is not the word that's used in this text because God is not capricious and moody and childish and sinful in how he exercises his wrath. The word that Paul uses is the word orge. It literally means to grow ripe, to build up over a long period of time and to be directed towards something intentionally. Here's the implication. It is this. God does not lose his temper and fly off the handle in an irrational rage. Instead, God's wrath is a firm, settled hostility towards sin, and he directs his perfect justice towards evil. You wanna worship a God like this, by the way. Because if you're like, man, I don't want to worship a God that's full of wrath and anger. Okay, then you basically have to say, if God is just mercy, grace, and love, that God doesn't really care and he won't really do anything about the atrocities of things like the Holocaust or sex trafficking or child abuse. Because God's just a big cosmic teddy bear in the sky, he's not going to do anything about that. He's impotent. He's powerless because he doesn't feel any anger at all. No, you want a God that has a firm, settled hostility towards evil and sin. The only problem is if you accept that that is the God of the Bible, you have to also admit that you have participated in the same evil that his wrath is directed towards. And So what we see is that God's wrath is directed towards humanity because Paul says in verse 18, we have suppressed the truth of God. That word suppressed means to push something down. It's like a game we used to play when we were swimming in the pool as kids. We'd take a beach ball and we would try to swim to the bottom of the deep end with a beach ball and push it down and push it down and push it down. Anybody do that when you were a kid, right? It's this idea that it's hard to push it down, but we're gonna keep pushing it down. It's gonna still come up to the surface, but we're gonna keep trying to push it down. This is what Paul says we've done with the truth of God because God has put his stamp in us Because we're made in the image and likeness of God, and He's put His workmanship around us. In other words, what can be known of God is plain. But the problem isn't that God hides Himself from us and makes Himself not known to us. The problem is we don't want it to be true, because if it were true, it would require us to repent and it would require us to worship. And so what do we do? Well, humanity has suppressed the truth. What can be known about God is known to us in our world. There's a scientist named Michael Denton, and he wrote, There is no avoiding the conclusion that the world looks as if it has been tailored for life. It appears To have been designed, if you just look at the axial tilt of the earth, it is perfectly designed so that life could be possible on planet earth. And if it was just a fraction off life on earth would not be possible. If the sun were just a little bit closer to the earth, the earth would burn up. If it were just a little bit further away, the earth would freeze. The human eye is made up of millions of different intricate parts. And so we have to conclude from looking at the world around us that there is a creator God who has designed it for life. Everybody, take a deep breath in, deep breath out. You breathed in a perfect combination of gases that keep you alive. And if it was just a fraction of an inch off, you would die. So, for us to say that all came about by accident is for us to basically prove this passage true. We've suppressed the truth. Deep down, we know that this world has to be created for life to flourish, and yet we've suppressed the truth. It's not just in the world, it's in the cosmos. You look outside at planets and stars and galaxies and all of these things, and we have to admit, because it's just obvious to us, for something to come into existence like the universe, there must be something else that already exists to bring it into existence. It is not that nothing and no one created everything. Deep down, you know that. Everyone knows that. So it's not just the cosmos. It's also in our own consciences. The fact that we have an inner sense of right and an inner sense of wrong. And that's different from animals. Like when a lion eats a gazelle, it's not called homicide, right? They're calling in the lion homicide unit and what do we have here, right? No, it's called lunch, right? And yet when we take the life of another human being in all cultures, in all places, throughout all of human history, there's something in us that says it should not be that way. Why? If we are just highly evolved mammals, why is it the way that it is? It's because we've been made in the image and likeness of God. He's the divine lawgiver, and his imprint is inside you. You know right and you know wrong, but what have you done? I have done the same thing. We have suppressed the truth of God. It's not that there's insufficient evidence to convince us that there is a God. It's that if God does exist, he'll probably have a say in how we live our lives. He'll probably have a say in our sexuality. He'll probably have a say in how we spend our time. He'll probably have a say in how we spend our money. He'll probably have a say in how we treat our neighbor, and so instead of acknowledging it was. God and creator and king, we have developed our own modern, scientific, enlightened worldview. And this is what it states. No one plus nothing equals everything. And we've professed to be wise, but what Paul is going to say, we've actually become fools. Are you still with me? Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What, what else have we done to incur the wrath of God? Well, we have failed to acknowledge God we have failed to acknowledge god when when paul says that although they knew god the word he's using for knew is not the word of like we kind of know intellectually no it's a deep down intimate almost subconscious knowledge of god that paul is saying all of humanity possesses that we know there's a god that we know there's a creator that we know that there's a designer and although we know that deep down we refuse to honor or give thanks to him in other words we don't want to obey his rules we don't want to obey his commands So we don't honor him because we don't want to obey what he has to say about how this life is to be lived. And we don't want to give him credit for his gifts. We want to take the gifts of relationship and the gifts of nature and the gifts of sex and the gifts of food. And we want to worship all of those things, but we don't want to worship the God that gave us all of those things. And the fundamental sin of humanity, I need you to hear this, the fundamental sin of humanity is not all of these symptoms that we're going to talk about later. The chief sin that was existent in Eden back in Genesis 3 is the sin of rejecting the rule of God and refusing to honor God, saying to God, I want to be king. I want to be in charge. I want my will, not your will. And so when we fail to acknowledge God, honor God, And thank God, Paul says, our thinking becomes futile. We we come up with all manner of absurd ideas. And I love what British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge said. He said that we educate ourselves into imbecility. We become educated idiots. Why? Because we're trying to explain how life is possible without God. We also try to explain how truth is possible without God. There's a phrase going on right now, just live your truth, right? (laughs) Live your truth. But here's what's crazy is we're also saying that truth is relative. It can mean anything you want it to mean, but go out and live it. But how can you live it if it actually isn't possible? There's no such thing as truth, right? And we're trying to figure out meaning in life without God. But if you don't have God in your life, basically your life means nothing. You are a glob of DNA. You are highly evolved palm scum that is walking to your own grave. But we say, well, life is meaningful. Why? Because I say it is. Okay. Our our thinking has become Feudal in our foolish hearts to become darkened. That means our affections, our moral judgments become tainted, become distorted, become confused. And he says, professing to be wise, they became fools. Like, I don't think it's an accident. If you go to any major university, if you walk the halls of academia, you hang out with really, really smart people that have the advanced degrees. Um, things like atheism and agnosticism and universalism are seen as kind of the pinnacles of enlightenment. Like, you're smart if you just deny the existence of God, Um, which is funny. Cosmologists, people who study the origins of the universe, they will admit, we don't know how the universe came into being, but we do know that it wasn't God. So things like intelligent design, creationism, religion, those things are seen as laughable. Those things are seen as backwards and antiquated. And so what we've done is we've claimed a certain kind of wisdom. We've claimed a certain kind of intellect and intelligence that is completely absent In a belief in creator God and in our pride and in our arrogance, we've considered ourselves to be wise. We're smart. We're enlightened. We're intelligent. Even though the epitome of foolishness is to ignore the most basic cause of all existence, and that is God. Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And this is what we've done. But, But it's not just those who deny the existence of God. Anytime any of us say something like, I know the Bible says this, but we're doing the exact same thing. I know the Bible says we're supposed to wait until we get married, but I know the Bible says I'm not supposed to get drunk, but I know the Bible says this about how I'm supposed to be ethical with how I use my money. But what we're doing is we're looking at the commands, the precepts, and the directions of God, and we're saying, I'm just a little bit smarter than you, God. You're out of touch, you're antiquated, you're irrelevant, you're dense, your commands are asking too much of me, and you don't know what it's like to be me, so I'm gonna do what I wanna do. And I'm smarter than you. It's not just that we've considered ourselves smarter than God. We've worshiped false gods. Here's the the idea. Um, You were created to worship. You were designed to worship. You were designed to attribute worth and value and all meaning into your creator. You were designed for that beautiful, amazing, intimate relationship. But if you suppress the truth of God, if you refuse to acknowledge God's glory, we're left without a God. So what do we do? Because we were created to worship, if we refuse to worship the true God, we are left to manufacture gods for ourselves. And so this is what we've done. Actually, it says that um, they created images resembling mortal man. What's the first on the list of things we've created to worship? Ourselves. Ourselves. We've created things that look like us and that talk like us and that tell us more of what we want to know and what we want to hear and what we agree with before we even hear them speak. So we've set ourselves, our desires, our intellect, and our own will at the center of our universe. And then from there, he says, we have, as human beings, descended so low to worship birds and animals and creeping things. What is a creeping thing? Well, that's a, that's a bug, right? Right. So it's this ridiculous picture that the human heart is capable of creating any sort of idol out of any silly, ridiculous, absurd thing. It was John Calvin that said the human heart is an idol factory, that we're capable of trying to find ultimate meaning and worth and attributing all value to all manner of things besides almighty, eternal God. Now, as Americans, we hear this and we go, oh, well, that's for some poor soul in the jungles of Africa, right? I'm an American. No idols here. (laughs) If you don't think we're guilty of idolatry more so than any other culture on the face of the earth, you're not paying attention. Because here's what we do as Americans. We, We attribute all manner of value, all manner of worth, all manner of meaning. We look to things to save us each and every day that aren't God. And we constantly live frustrated and disappointed and angry at each other because these things that we've set up in the place of God don't deliver and they don't save us. One of the things that we've done is we set up money and success and lifestyle in the place of God. We've said, if I could get to this certain income bracket, if I could get the house, if I could get the car, if I could get the certain lifestyle, then my life is going to be fixed. What are we doing? We're saying to that idol, I want you to save me and fix me. Only problem is it can't. It never can. If you think it can, man, just go to the grocery store and read the magazine racks of the lives of celebrities, right? Lifestyles of the rich and famous. Are those people happy? <laughs> No, they're a train wreck, and some of us are too this morning. Why? Because you've set lifestyle and success and money in the place of God, and you're wondering why that's not fixing you, because it never can, because it was never designed to. It's an idol. Some of us, it's not that. It's entertainment. I I am amazed at what we will do for entertainment that we will never do for God, right? We'll sit through a three-hour Marvel movie, right, with our legs crossed because we've got to pee, but we're not getting up because there's a secret scene at the end, right? I want to see that scene, right? And if I preach for like just a little bit too long today, oh, how inconsiderate, how rude, right? Some of us are checking our watches right now. I got to go get my kids, right? We, we live for this. We want to be entertained. Why do we have be been entertained? Because some of us, we want an escape from the life that we live now. We are looking for entertainment to fix us, to save us, to rescue us from the brokenness inside of us. And I just need you to hear me. Eight hours of Netflix is not going to fix what's broken inside of you. Entertainment is a terrible idol. For some of it, it's sexuality. It's romance. It was Becker. He was a Jewish atheist that wrote the book The Denial of Death, and he said this. He said, when Western civilization as a whole removed the concept of God, we were left with a vacuum, and so what did we do? We moved sex and romance into that vacuum that God occupied, and we've put sex on such a high pedestal in our society. We put romance on such a high pedestal. We essentially sing worship songs to that potential someone, Right? Some of you like, worship songs? Yeah, you know the John Legend song? I give you all of me. Right? Didn't we just sing that like three minutes ago? Right? It's a worship song. But what do we do? We say there's a Mr. Right out there somewhere. He's going to fix me. He's going to save me. He's going to give my life meaning and my life purpose and my life fulfillment. And then we marry the guy and we find out he's a sinner in need of God's grace. And we go, oh, I must have married the wrong person. So we divorce him and get with someone else. We're moving through these idols, and this idol doesn't save us, and this idol doesn't fix us. And and some of us say, no, no, it's sexuality. If I just give in to all my sexual urges, then I will be fulfilled, then I will be saved. And that's a lie from the pit of hell, because that's a bankrupt idol that can never save your soul. And this is what we've done. For some of us, it's fame, it's popularity, it's celebrity. We worship other human beings. But some of us, it's not that. We worship the idea of being worshiped. It's the insidious thing about living in the Nashville area, isn't it? We want fame. We want popularity. Why? Because we worship being worshipped. That's the part of our hearts that wants to be God. That's the part of our hearts that's just like Lucifer and says, I will be worshipped instead of the God that gave me life being worshipped. And some of us, that's our idol. could be government. It could be politics. I'm skipping that one because I want to live today. Um, It could be (laughs) from Cannon County, man. Hey, um could be guns, could be food, could be college football, could be toys, it could be hobbies, it could be anything at all. But if you want to know what your hobby, or excuse me, you want to know what your idol is, you got to ask the question, how much time and money go into my worship of this thing at the expense of other things? Like if I want to know what's valuable to you, I just need to see how you spend your time, how you spend your money, what you spend your time thinking about, because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, if that thing has your time and your attention, that thing is your idol. Sorry. Uh, what about this one? Are you willing to step back and question your loyalty of it? Whenever people say, Oh, don't talk about guns in church, right? You talk about guns, Jesus can have my gun when he pries it from my cold, dead fingers. I'm like, Hey, we found it. That's your idol, right? If you're not willing to take a step back and say, Wait a second, have I been putting way too much stock in this thing? That's your idol. That's your idol. How about this one? What behaviors follow from my worship of this thing? When I binge eight hours of Netflix, does that make me a better husband? When I spend all this time reading and obsessing about this one Instagram influencer and I read all their things, how does my heart feel and my soul feel? Do I feel more empty or do I feel more like loving Jesus and being content with the things that I have? See, anything that you publicly testify your allegiance to, anything that you testify of the power and worth of that thing in your life, that has your worship, that has your idolatry, that has your allegiance. And so what Paul is saying is this, we are all guilty of exchanging the glory of God for the worship of idols. Everybody. Everybody. Because anything you have to consult first before you obey and honor God in your life, that's an idol. God is worthy of all of our worship. He's worthy of all of our honor. He's worthy of all of our glory. And yet, our sin as human beings is that we have given primarily worth to things that are not God. And those are unworthy things. Let's look at this next part. Look, if you will, at verse 24. Therefore, um, anytime you see the word therefore, you got to ask what it's there for. Me like this, that's the cheesiest thing you've ever said. No, it gets worse. I'll say more cheesy things, right? So it says basically, all these things have happened, and because of all these things, this is what God has done. He gave them up and the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. We'll stop right there. If you're feeling self-righteous and you're like, no, 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 any of these things. um, Disobedient to parents, really? Yeah, we're all guilty. Right? Some of you are still self-righteous. All right, let's keep reading. (laughs) Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree, That those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Again, this is probably some of the most uncomfortable scripture we will ever read out loud in church. Thank you, Corey. (laughs) We talk about the wrath of God. That makes us squirm, right? And when we talk about God's wrath, we got to understand it is not a monolith of how God's wrath is executed. There's actually a couple of ways biblically this happens. The first is what many of us think of when we hear about God's wrath, and that is the final wrath of God. In Revelation chapter 20, it talks about the great white throne of judgment, the day of the Lord, hell, and the lake of fire. And yes, that is how God's wrath is executed, but I need you to hear something. It is not that God's wrath is just executed on the last day. It's that God's wrath is executed all around us every single day. And one of the ways it is that we're going to read about later in the book of Romans is God's provisional wrath. Romans 13, 4 talks about God's wrath being executed through the legal and the judicial system, through natural consequences for our sinful behavior. Like if you speed, you're going to get a ticket, right? Some of you are like, I've never done yeah, Shut up. Yes, you have, right? All these things that happen as a result of our sinful behavior and God using natural government and God using natural consequences to execute his justice and wrath, that is the wrath of God being felt every single day. But it's not just that, it's also this kind of wrath we read about in chapter one. It is God's permissible wrath. And it is that God gives you what you want as an act of judgment. This is the Burger King wrath. Have it your way, right? We say to God, I want my sin. And God says, okay, here's your sin. Because it says God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Some of us listening to this go, how is that an act of judgment? I want to do what I want to do. So thank you, God, for giving me what it is I want to do. No, that's the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Because the worst thing that can ever happen to a sinner is for God to hand them over to the sins that they love so they can keep on sinning. Why? Because sin blinds us. Sin hardens our heart. Sin leads us to proudly and willingly abandon what is honorable, dignified, and holy. You know how I know this? Because I've spent a ton of time around people that have wrestled through addiction. And when they take that first pill or they take that first drink or they take that first hit of something, they don't think about five years down the road, this is going to lead to me like stealing from my grandparents. And losing my kids and losing everything I own and end up me being homeless and doing anything for that next hit. Usually it starts with them thinking, well, I have control over this. But sin always takes you further than you want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay. And it takes more from you than you're willing to pay. Why? Because sin blinds us. And so when God hands us over to sin, that's an act of judgment. It's an act of judgment. So why does God do this? Well, Paul says it's because we've exchanged the truth of God, for a lie. What is that lie? The lie that God is not worthy of our allegiance, he's not worthy of our worship, and he's not worthy of our obedience. That we know better than him. That yes, he's created us, yes, he's given us life, yes, he's given us his word, but what we don't really want that. We wanna do what we wanna do, and so when we do this, when we've exchanged the truth for a lie, we're serving the creature that is ourselves and our idols rather than the creator. That's what he says in verse 25, and then he begins in verse 26 and 27 to describe something that is exceptionally countercultural, and if you read it with your eyes open, you probably squirmed and bristled and said, surely that can't mean what it actually says. There's three possible explanations for Paul's description of homosexual activity in verses 26 and through 27. One of the ones is very in vogue in progressive theological circles, and it's this. When we read this, we need to understand Paul's just a homophobe. And so we read through the lens of love because we're enlightened, we're highly uh, educated now as 2021 Americans. And so when we read this, we get to pick out the parts that are Scripture and the parts that aren't Scripture because clearly uh, Paul is intolerant, so we should just skip passages of Scripture like this. There's only one problem. It is that Paul has said he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. An apostle was someone's designated representative, So when Paul is speaking and writing scripture, he's not speaking the opinions of Paul. He's speaking the word of God. And if we start doubting Paul's position as an apostle, then we also have to start doubting Peter's position as an apostle. Because Peter said about Paul, you should listen to the writings of Paul. So then if Paul has it wrong and Peter has it wrong, then you're left without a New Testament. And what are you left with? Your own emotions, your own feelings, your own sentiment. You are the final judge and authority of what is right and what is wrong, in which case you don't need Christianity because you're on your own God. Then there's the second that some of us have heard, and that is that when Paul is talking about this, he's not talking about monogamous, loving, committed, same-sex couples. He's talking about promiscuity, he's talking about temple prostitution, he's talking about sexual assault. He would not be aware of such relationships that we have today, but there's only one problem, and that is if you actually do a cursory study of the Roman Empire, you will find out this is impossible. Because Emperor Nero actually married another man just a few years after this was written. You study the historian Plutarch, and you study the philosophers You find out that same-sex marriage was an accepted, openly celebrated part of Roman society. You saying that Paul, as a Roman citizen, would not have any clue about that is like saying someone that lives in San Francisco is not aware of homosexuality. Of course Paul would have been aware of that. So what are we left with that those two things aren't so? It is that this passage of Scripture means exactly what it says. And when Paul is referring to homosexuality, he's not saying it's the worst sin of all. He's not saying it's an unredeemable, unforgivable sin that is worse than every other sin. He's referring to homosexuality as an example of humanity prioritizing desire over God's design. Now, don't let this example sidetrack you. Some of us, we hear this and we're going, "No, no, 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 no. That's intolerant. That's bigoted. I can't do that. Absolutely not. We're not even going there. No, no. Paul's argument remains that humanity is guilty of rejecting God, suppressing the truth of God, and prioritizing our desires over God's will and over God's design. That's his argument. And so homosexuality is cited, not because it's far worse than every other sin. It's cited because it's the clearest evidence of God's order and creation being rejected. Because God has designed human sexuality. He's the one that designed our bodies. He's the one that designed uh, us in his image and likeness as male and female. And so the deepest embrace of male and female results in creation. And that was God's beautiful and amazing design that we should celebrate. However, when we prioritize our desires over God's design, we care less about what creator God wants and we care more about what our desires want. And homosexuality is an example of this. It's not the only way this works, right? Right. Anytime you've ever clicked on a website that even though God has says human sexuality is supposed to operate within a marriage, one man, one woman, but yet you've said in that moment, what matters more to me is my desire, not God's design. You're guilty of the same thing. Never in a moment of passion, you've looked at that person who's not your spouse and you said, I know God says we're supposed to do this, but I don't care. In that moment, you're guilty of the same thing. Your desire over God's design. So when we talk about these things, we need to be very, 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 very careful. Because most of the folks that I've talked with and done life with that struggle with same-sex attraction, um, they didn't wake up one morning and say, you know what? I think I just want to rebel against God, so I'm going to feel this way about someone of my same sex. No, most of them didn't feel like they even chose their desires. And so most people that want to follow Jesus that are struggling with same-sex attraction, most of the time they're dealing with deep, deep, intense shame shame. And many of them unanswered prayer because they've gone before the Lord and they say, God, please take these feelings from me. Please take these desires from me. And so first and foremost, when we talk about these things, we don't need to take the position of judge. Rather, we need to understand that the conversation needs to happen with compassion, with understanding, and with love. Because here's the reality. The curse of sin has brought upon humanity corruption. And all of us have experienced that corruption, but here's the deal. We're all afflicted by different dimensions of that corruption. Therefore, we don't always choose our weaknesses, we don't always choose our struggles. Some of us have a natural bent towards being deceptive. We didn't ask for that, and yet that is what we have to deal with. Some of us have a natural bent towards envy and jealousy and anger and wrath. And some of us have a natural bent towards sexual sin. And the reality is it's all the same central sin. It's the central sin that we are guilty of rejecting God's rule and declaring ourselves, our intellect, and our desires to be God in our lives. That central sin is going to manifest in different people differently. So that means that none of us can stand in judgment over those who struggle with different sins. I mean, look at the other corruptions that Paul lists. Look at verse 29 through 31. He talks about evil, covetous, malice, envy, murder, strife, disobedient to parents, right? It's the same central problem. It's that we want our way, our desire, and our will over God's. And because we don't want to acknowledge God, God has given us over. To a debased mind. That means a mind that can't even form right judgments, a mind that is completely abandoned to sin. It's not that we sin and it's just us, it's that we willingly and we proudly commit sin that we know is wrong. Like everybody that tells a lie, you know it's wrong to tell a lie before you tell it, and yet you tell it, right? And it's not just that, but we encourage, we applaud, and we give approval to others that also live sinful lives. I don't know if you know this or not, um, before I was following Jesus, Like, it's no fun to sin by yourself, right? You're gonna go out and raise hell and get drunk. You want other people doing it with you, right? Because you don't feel so bad when it's other people doing it with you. Some of you are like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Yes, you do. Stop being so self-righteous, right? (laughs) Some of us go, okay, so for this reason, God's gonna judge me because of that? Okay, no, 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 no. He's already judging you. If that's the posture of your heart, where you look at and you go, oh, I'm real scared, God's judgment. It's proven that you're already in the judgment of God. He's already judging you. Because we have suppressed the truth of God. Because we have failed to acknowledge God. Because we've considered ourselves smarter than God. We've worshipped false gods. We've declared ourselves to be in charge. God looks at us as sinful human beings and says, I'll give you what you want. And what you want is not me. What you want is you. What you want is your sin. What you want is your own will. What you want is your own ideas. What you want is your own idol. All right, let's pray. I'm just kidding. What if that was how we ended, right? They'd be like, yeah. How is, this, how is this good news, right? You're also trusting, too. It's amazing how many of you bowed your head, closed your eyes. I got a question for you. How is this good news, right? We started talking about the gospel, good news, evangelion. The king is victorious, peace can now happen. We read this and we go, man, I just feel horrible. This isn't good news. It's like the season finale of This Is Us. I just want to cry and eat ice cream, right? (laughs) How is this good news? This is good news because before you will truly want a Savior, you must first realize what he saved you from. Before you will truly want a Savior, you, you have to realize just what he saved you for, and just what he's done in saving you. If the Bible is telling the truth about how truly lost you are in your sin apart from God, it would only take an act of God to rescue you from that. But that's precisely what Jesus came for. And this is good news because Romans doesn't end here. (laughs) Praise God for that. But, like, if you really want the good news, you really want the power of God for salvation in your life, not just self-actualization, not just Jesus showing up to make you a better version of yourself. First, you have to digest the bad news. Like, if a doctor only told people good news all the time, he'd be sued for malpractice, right? Somebody comes in, the doctor knows they got stage four cancer. If they don't operate tomorrow, that person will be dead by next week. But he goes, I don't really want to ruin their lunch, right? You're good. That's not a good doctor. When the Bible gives us truth, it's always for a reason. We've got to digest the bad news. Here's the bad news. Before you met Jesus or if you are living your life without Jesus, you are guilty. You are guilty. There's not a single person in this room that is not guilty. And deep down, you know you are. Even if you pretend not to know. Even if you say, well, I don't believe in a God like that. doesn't matter if you believe in it or not. Doesn't matter if I say I don't believe in the law of gravity. If I jump off the stage, I'm falling, right? The bad news is, without Jesus, and before you met Jesus, you failed to acknowledge and honor God because you have declared yourself smarter than him. You've looked at his word, you looked at his commands, you looked at his will, and you've just said, I'm gonna do me, thank you very much. The bad news is, you've worshipped, and you've given your life over to false idols that can't save you. Every one of us were created to worship and attribute ultimate worth and meaning and value to God. But if we refuse to do that, we have to create something to attribute ultimate value and meaning and worth to. And the bad news is every one of us are guilty of doing that. The bad news is because you've rejected God's rule and declared yourself to be God in your life, God has handed you over to a debaseline and dishonorable passions. And it all It's going to be different for every one of us. For some of us, our dishonorable passions show up in our anger problem. For some of us, it shows up in addiction. For some of us, it shows up in a sexual sin. But it's the same concept. It's the same idea. And even though deep down, every one of us, if we don't have Jesus in our life or before we met Christ, knew that our sin was wrong, not only do we delight in practicing our sin, We also want to applaud and encourage other people to do the same sin that we're participating in. Why? Because it makes it seem less bad. But here's the best news possible. You ready? Jesus didn't die for good people. Like if there's any one of us that's still holding on to the delusion that we're a pretty good guy, right? Because we're better than our brother-in-law. You don't think you need the gospel. Gospel's not for you, man. The gospel is only for those with enough humility and enough repentance to admit that in and of themselves dwells no good thing. Because the Bible says in Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That yes, we're far more sinful than we ever have given ourselves credit for being. But yes, God is far more loving and holy and good and forgiving than we've ever dared imagine and he looks at us and all of our mess and all of our rebellion and all of our idolatry and he reaches out and says I still want to save you. And that's good news. And if you are in Christ your sin debt, all of your idolatry, all of your sexual sin, all of your rebellion, all of your hard-heartedness that was all paid in full by the loving and gracious sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Question is do you think you need that? If you don't think you need it, because Jesus just came to make you a better version of yourself then you'll never receive that. And the good news is God is so good. He's so merciful, he's so gracious, he's so slow to anger, he's so forgiving. He was willing to send his own son to die in your place the death that you rightfully deserve. Because you're a rebel. Because you're a hater of God. Because you're an idolater. Bible says this is how we know what love is. Like if you don't believe the Bible is telling the truth about how sinful you truly are apart from Jesus, you will never be able to worship God for being as loving as the Bible says he actually is. Let that sink in. That's how much God loves you. we pray together this morning? Father, I want to pray for all of us in the room this morning, but Lord, I want to pray for two Types of people, the first is, Lord, I want to pray for any of us that have never truly put our hope and trust and faith in Jesus. So when we read about this, God, we're not reading just philosophy or some distant, far-off, vague theological construct. We're reading about a reality that describes our life, that we're under the wrath of God. So I pray for all of my friends this morning that may have never received you for who you are. That this morning they would stop hardening their heart. They would acknowledge that you are God. They would stop suppressing the truth. And they'd receive your love, your forgiveness, your mercy, your grace. Thank you for that amazing grace. Lord, for those of us this morning that even though your word says that we're not to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Lord, some of us, we are ashamed. We feel like we need to apologize for what your word says about judgment, about what your word says about human sexuality. Lord, forgive us. We're not ashamed of you. We pray that this word creates in us humility, and fear and trembling and worship as we come before you and we worship you for loving us While we were yet sinners. You came in the room this morning. You should have received communion. So we're going to spend some time getting still and quiet. Reflecting on what we've read. Reflecting on what we've talked about today. I'm going to ask you. Spend some time reflecting on what Jesus has done for you. There will be people over here to my right and left. They would love to pray with you about anything going on in your life. We've got Pastor Muhammad over here. If there's any questions you have about any of these things, about the gospel and how that works, would you come find him? Let's just take a moment to be still, to let God speak. Lord, we bring before you our hearts and we ask that you would speak what is true. Speak what is true. We love you, we praise you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.